0: In more than 60 countries around the world, it's still a crime to be in a same-sex relationship. In some countries, queer people are being thrown in jail, beaten, even killed. In Australia, there's also discrimination still. You might not see it. It might not be as overt. But so many queer people are leading double lives. You're going to hear from one a bit later in this show. It's time to dive into these issues at a very special event. On Gadigal Land from the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference, I'm Dave Marchese. This is Hack. Hack!
1: The community's voices will be front and centre. Doesn't matter about your sexuality generated, any of that. You're just attracted to a human being. They
0: said, oh, we couldn't be prouder of you. We're just sad that you had to hide it from us for so long. This
1: is a celebration of modern Australia. We're a diverse, inclusive Australia. Hack.
0: Yeah, we've got a big hat coming up for you from this Human Rights Conference. Coming up, you're going to hear from the first openly transgender state senator in the US. We're also having a chat to one of the world's big experts on sexual orientation and gender identity. And then later, something a bit closer to home, we're bringing you the powerful story of an Australian woman who's hidden her whole life from her family because she says coming out just isn't an option. Look, we do have a lot to cover. Let's get into it.
1: Hack. LGBT. To you it might just mean society, but to me it means family.
0: On Triple J. So here we are, we're at this Human Rights Conference, the most serious part of World Pride in Sydney. And there are heaps of people all around us. This is a really big event. Three days, more than 60 local and international speakers, politicians, First Nations leaders, academics, activists. Also, thousands of ordinary people from all over the world. Lachlan Bennett's been getting amongst it to find out what this conference is all about.
2: Sydney World Pride. It's two weeks of non-stop parties. And while we all love a great night out, in the harsh light of day, you can't ignore the things making life hell for the queer community. Well, this is the very basis of our movement and the history of Mardi Gras was really built on protests. That's Anna Brown. I'm the CEO of Equality Australia, Australia's national LGBTI human rights organisation. Equality Australia organised the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference. It's a three-day gathering to ensure that LGBTQIA people can party with a purpose. So it's a global LGBTIQ human rights conference, which means people from around the world have come to discuss and share stories about the key human rights issues facing our communities, not just in Australia, but also in the region and around the world. The event is the largest LGBTQIA human rights conference ever organised. But what is there to talk about? The anti-LGBTQI rhetoric and the
1: so-called anti-gender movement is everywhere and it is affecting us all in Europe. States are rolling back the clock now by banning things like gender affirming care. At least 1,292 queer people were killed between 2014 and 2020 on the basis of
2: hate. Okay, so clearly there's heaps to talk about. But it's not all doom and gloom. A lot of the conference is about figuring out ways to make things better. And these young people from around the world want to be part of that change.
3: A lot of countries, like my country, pride is not something that is celebrated.
1: I'm just focused right now on how I can support Pacific activists.
3: When you come from a small island, you realise that you're not alone.
1: I'm really hoping to learn what steps we need to take to move forward and also what can be brought back to regional and rural communities of Australia, especially for young people.
0: HACK on Triple J. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese coming to you from the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference. And I'm joined by Victor Madrigal Borlos. He's the United Nations independent expert on sexual orientation and gender. And he's with us now. Victor, thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: In your address this week to the Human Rights Conference, you spoke about achieving dignity and rights for queer people around the world. How much further do you think we have to go to get there?
3: Well, there is a, a number of areas in which extraordinary progress has been achieved over the last four or five decades. Anti-discrimination legislation, whole movement towards decriminalisation of same-sex intimacy. We also see a number of regressive measures now being a significant threat to our movements. This seems to answer to a series of patterns, one of which is the use of LGBT persons in different contexts with the purpose of galvanizing political bases, usually with electoral purposes, with the idea of actually gaining political traction by using LGBT people, and particularly trans persons, as props in cultural debates, in which very little evidence is actually used and a lot of stigma and discrimination are relied upon. It's
0: interesting because people might think, if they're not involved in the community, if they're not a queer person themselves, that as the years go on, we're seeing huge steps forward. But as you're saying, we're seeing some steps backwards as well.
3: Well, I think the big lesson is that this area continues to be an area that is vulnerable to political use. Used by religious leaders, and that we need to be vigilant.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with uh, Victor Madrigal-Borlos from the United Nations at the World Pride Human Rights Conference. Victor, you're looking at this from a global perspective. What about Australia? When you look at Australia as a country, how are we faring in terms of human rights for queer people?
3: Well, again, all of this is subject to the reality that no country is, um, in my view, immune to the possibility of regression. During my keynote, I acknowledged the extraordinary measure announced the day before yesterday by Foreign Minister Wong on the creation of a fund uh, to care for LGBTIQ plus issues not only in relation internally, but also in the region. And I think that role of leadership is something that is actually quite meaningful. Although I'm not proponent of subjecting the rights of minorities to popular vote, I take note of the results of the referendum on marriage equality, which I think propelled forward the rights of LGBT persons. And I also think that Australian states have some of the most advanced legislation when it comes to ending practices of conversion. I'm very much hopeful that this, of course, would be something that is a reality in the whole country soon. Our Listeners will
0: be familiar with what's happening in this country, of course, and maybe countries very similar to ours, but are you able to give us an outline of what things are like in other parts of the world where there are real risks to human lives for people in the queer community? What are some of the most uh, pressing issues at the moment?
3: There is oftentimes the notion that because certain practices of discrimination are, let's say, perhaps seen as more benign, that they don't involve physical coercion or incarceration or death, that they are less harmful. And I am actually always hoping to underline that messages of any kind, including those that are not involving physical punishment, but involve psychological messaging, can be harmful, having said that you are alluding to what is a real scope around the world. 67 countries still criminalize same-sex intimacy. 10 of them have the death penalty in the books. Others have as as much as 25 years of incarceration uh, in, in conditions that will be, of course, horrifying. So criminalization is a big scourge every social indicator is one where LGBT people actually perform lower than the rest of the population, and that includes health outcomes, that includes employment outcomes. Just to give you an example, where we have data, as many as one out of every four homeless youth belongs to the LGBT community, so there are terrible levels of social exclusion that affect these communities and that creates vulnerability to violence.
0: And Victor, just finally, what are your big hopes for the years ahead? If you look a decade down the track, what are you hoping we'll see in the world in terms of queer rights, uh, human rights?
3: Well, for somebody like me, who has been a witness to the type of social change that is possible for this movement, this extraordinary movement that is meeting in Sydney these days, This movement has created real change in social perception over the last 50 years. There are entire societies where some parts of the community has accessed political power and ability to gain access in social inclusion, for example. So we know that social change is possible and we know that we don't need to ask people to wait for three or four generations. One generation is enough. My hope is that this work will continue everywhere in the world, that it will gain the support of politicians, that it will gain the economic and financial support of all of those that can make this be a reality for people that, for whom right now the idea of freedom and equality is only an empty promise rather than a reality.
0: I'm sure so many people listening now share those hopes. We very much appreciate your insight and your time. UN independent expert on sexual orientation and gender, Victor Madrigal Borlos, thank you very much for joining us on Hack.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me. Hack.
2: My name is Sarah McRide, and I am a proud transgender American. On Triple J.
0: I want to turn now to another special guest. Sarah McBride is a US state senator and she's the highest ranking openly transgender elected official in the US. And I'm so happy to say she's with us now. Senator, thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy Pride.
0: Happy Pride. I mean, you were elected back in 2020, a few years ago now. You became the first openly transgender state senator in American history. Did you always believe... that that was possible? When you looked ahead at your political ambitions, did you think that that would happen?
2: Absolutely not. Uh, Growing up, the idea that someone like me could get elected to public office anywhere in the United States seemed so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible. The fact that that seemed so impossible as my authentic self is what kept me in the closet for the first 21 years of my life, because my dreams and my identity seemed mutually exclusive. But ultimately as I think so many of us who are here today at World Pride, at this Human Rights Conference, understand ultimately that authenticity has to come out. We have one life that we're living. And so I came out and in the 10 years plus since I came out, I've seen that nothing is truly impossible.
0: I mean, that must have been such a hard decision, just knowing the difficulties that were ahead of you in terms of this kind of career,
2: this type of life. Well, when I ultimately came out, I had given up on any kind of future. Frankly, not just in politics, but in finding love, of being loved, of living in a community I love, of doing really any work that I love. Because at that point, there weren't many examples of out trans people who were happy, healthy, embraced by their community and pursuing their dreams successfully. But at the end of the day, the decision was obvious. Because the pain for me that homesickness, that unwavering ache in the pit of my stomach on the best of days. It would only go away when I finally accepted who I am and shared it with the world and allowed the world to see it.
0: I want to hone in on that because it's interesting, the feeling you describe, that homesickness, which I guess you're trying to make it clear to people who aren't trans what it's like to live in a body
2: that you don't feel is yours. What does it feel like? You, I think summed it up very accurately. I think one of the challenges that we have when we're talking about transgender rights and transgender identities is that most people who aren't trans have a difficult time wrapping their mind around the experience and the feeling of being trans and in the closet. I think when we're talking about sexual orientation, most people who are straight understand what it feels like to love and to lust. And so they're able to enter into conversations around sexual orientation with an analogous experience. And that lack of analogous experience for folks who aren't transgender becomes, I think for many people, a difficult barrier to get over as they seek to process and eventually seek to find compassion and support and passion for trans rights. And so for me, as I, as I explain it to the public, I use the same language I used when I was trying to explain it to my parents, who are good, decent, progressive people, but who really, really, really struggled when I came out. The closest thing that I can compare being trans and in the closet to was a feeling of homesickness. It was a fact I thought about every single waking hour of every single day. And unlike homesickness with physical location, which dissipates with time and getting used to your new surroundings, it was a homesickness that only grew as I grew older.
0: Trans issues are often politicised. I imagine it's exactly the same in the US as it is here in Australia. We've seen many examples of uh, trans issues becoming topics for heated discussion and debate, and often without trans people in those conversations. What is the impact on young trans people seeing that play out around them?
2: Well, the situation in the United States right now is dire in a word. We are very lucky to have the most pro-equality president we've ever had. But at the state level, and unfortunately during the four years of Donald Trump, trans rights became a political wedge issue by the political right in the United States. And they particularly focused in on trans kids. The conversations alone, let alone the policies, are not just harmful and hurtful, they can be deadly. When you wake up every single day and see people, including political leaders, characterize you as not real and frequently as a threat, a predator, when you see politicians seeking to forcibly detransition you by trying to ban gender-affirming care in all of its forms for a transgender young person and in some cases even trans adults, it's frightening. And that fear, that stress, that anxiety And sometimes what can develop into hopelessness results in far too many young people dying by suicide. And so it's incredibly difficult to watch. It's incredibly difficult for me as a trans adult to watch when I turn on the news. It is a dire situation, but I do remain hopeful because ultimately I know one, we've already created change that was impossible years before into reality in the United States. I'm hopeful because while There is a rise in anti-trans bills and rhetoric. Ultimately, I think the public continues to support us, continues to grow in their understanding of trans people.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with US State Senator Sarah McBride at the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference about all sorts of issues related to queer rights, trans rights around the world. Sarah, what about visibility in the media, in politics? I mean... What kind of a difference does it make for young trans people to be able to see
2: people like you in positions of power? I know how much of a difference it would have made for me as a young person to be able to turn on the TV or open my computer and see out trans people who were living openly and pursuing their dreams. And so the fact that there are now trans people who are out and leading movements and running businesses and starring in TV and films and getting elected to public office creates a whole new world of possibility for young trans people, a whole new perspective and certainly a greater, deeper well of hope. But more than that, too, when we're talking about visibility, what that obviously means is that there's a greater degree of representation in government. You can't craft effective solutions for diverse communities if you don't have the full diversity of that community at the table. That's true in technology, it's true in business, and it's certainly true in public policy. And so when we're crafting positive proactive solutions, our voices are critical to make sure that it works for everyone. And of course, when we're trying to combat anti-trans laws, It's critical to have our voices because it's difficult to hate someone whose story you know. It's difficult to hate up close. It's difficult if you're an anti-trans lawmaker to have to stand up and defend an anti-trans bill when a trans person is staring you right in the face across the aisle. I'll briefly say in Delaware, for instance, we had an anti-trans bill that was introduced and it was referred to my committee uh, that I chair. And for the first time in American history, an anti-trans bill and its sponsoring lawmaker had to come before a trans person in the big chair to defend the discriminatory policy when, for years, trans people had had to go before anti-trans lawmakers in the big chair to plead for our rights. And that juxtaposition, that change, is a reflection of our progress. But even more importantly, I think, for a young person who's watching, as powerful as it is to see allies stand up and fight for you, it is particularly empowering to be able to see that the person who's standing in the way of that harmful law isn't just an ally, but it's someone just like them.
0: If there's a young Australian trans person out there now listening to you, maybe dreaming of a career in politics, what would be your advice to them?
2: Well, the first thing I'd say, as I said at the start, is that nothing is truly impossible. You can reimagine the world. You can dream of a world that doesn't exist today and you can achieve it because that's what every community has been able to do throughout human history. And we're going to be no different. The second thing I'd say is a lesson that I learned when I was uh, early in my advocacy and really struggling with a lot of hate and bullying and threats that, was, that were coming my way and wondering whether I had skin that was thick enough for this work. And one of the things that I began to realize doing research and listening to other people who'd face bullying and, and harassment and discrimination is that everyone has an insecurity. Everyone has something that society has told them they should be ashamed of. Whether it's your gender identity or your sexual orientation or what you look like, how you sound, what you do, whatever, whole host of characteristics society might say, you need to hide that. That is worthy of being mocked. And the thing about LGBTQ people, the thing about us trans people who are out, is that we've not only embraced that fact about ourselves. We've not only conquered our fear and our insecurity, but in many cases we're walking forward of from a place of pride and the bullies see that power. They see that individual agency in conquering our fears and they're jealous of it. And so I hope you know that you are powerful. You are powerful just by being and you carry that power with you from the safest of spaces to the scariest of places
0: it's been such a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you uh, you're so insightful and your message is going to reach far and wide across australia we very much thank you senator sarah mcbride appreciate you joining us on hack
2: the pleasure and privilege has been all mine hack
1: i was absolutely convinced i was going to hell it was torment
0: on triple j This is Hack, I'm Dave Marchese. I'm coming to you for this very special edition of Hack from the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference. We've been hearing from so many fascinating people. We're gonna take a bit of a break from the Human Rights Conference now though to bring you a really personal story. And I wanna ask you a question. Do you ever lie to your parents? Like, come on, we've all done it. Little things here and there. But what about lying to your parents about your whole identity? You're about to meet a young woman called Sarah. Sarah's gay. She's happily married, planning to have kids. But her family doesn't know any of that because of her religious beliefs. And while this kind of double life might seem extreme, it's probably more common than you think. What's not normal is speaking so openly about it. We can't use Sarah's real name for this story, We're very lucky though to hear her speak so openly about forbidden love, religion, and confronting homophobia in modern Australia. She spoke
1: with Ange McCormack. Ever since I was born, religion was shoved down my throat, just really drilled into the core of who I am. In
4: Sarah's Middle Eastern community in New South Wales, being straight and getting married was just a given. Being gay was not an option.
1: So if we were watching something on TV and then something about homosexuality came up, then my parents would pipe up and offer an opinion which was horribly homophobic. But when she
4: was about eight, Sarah realised she was attracted to girls and she knew exactly what that
1: meant. I was absolutely convinced I was going to hell. I don't understand why I am this way, but somehow I'm also condemned to hell for no reason of my own, I didn't ask for this. I also know if I ever said anything to my parents, there would be zero understanding. They'd probably kick me out or worse.
4: Sarah's secret stayed with her for years. She knew that being gay already meant she was going to hell, but thought maybe God would go easy on her if she never acted on it. She even practiced the conversations she'd have with him in the afterlife.
1: Like, this is how brainwashed I was. It was, okay when it comes to judgement, I can tell God, hey, look, I don't know where these feelings and thoughts came from, but at least I didn't act on it.
4: After finishing uni, doing really well and establishing her career, it started to become harder for Sarah to not act on her feelings.
1: It was torment. It was torment day in, day out, because... I was looking at my social circle, people are in relationships, I was like, great, that's never going to be me, ever.
4: And then she realised something about hell. She was already in it.
1: This is hell. This is what it's like, because everything that's being described is exactly what I'm going through, except of course being lit on fire.
4: At this point, she was spiralling. She was questioning God, her religion, and she tried asking people in her community about why being gay was wrong.
1: And I just hear really dumb answers, things that honestly were just not making sense, such as everyone has a cross they need to bear. After months asking that, I realised I'm not getting anywhere with this answer. No one is answering this question. So mentally, I was still trapped in the church, but emotionally, I was seeing a shift, and the shift was towards liberty.
4: Eventually, Sarah acted on her feelings. She kissed a woman for the first time in her mid-twenties.
1: It felt so natural, it felt so authentic. It just felt like an extension of me.
4: Sarah could deal with fleeting kisses. That wasn't anything serious. But then she started having feelings for her friend Claire. Big feelings.
1: And I was like, oh my God, this isn't just a relationship. This is going to be a marriage. And I just knew it. And it scared me to death. I'm not even going to entertain this on the one hand, but then on the other, I can't not have her in my life.
4: The feelings were mutual. Sarah and Claire started falling in love but telling Sarah's parents was out of the question.
1: If I tell them, they're probably just going to drop dead or have a stroke. There's just, it would really hurt them. And You mean that in, a, in literally? Literally.
4: And while Sarah was already good at lying, she'd be doing it for years already, having Claire in her life meant that the secret snowballed.
1: When we moved in together, they would be like, hey, I want to come over and I'd be like, no, you can't. And they'd be like, why? And I'd just lie and be like, it's too far away for you.
4: At this point, Sarah and Claire are fully in love and they started using psychedelics for the first time. They'd already had one powerful experience and decided to plan a trip using magic mushrooms.
1: What came through to us was so profound. It was direct communication with, you know, higher consciousness, if I had to explain it that way. dismantled all our prior understanding of how everything, including religion, worked. And that was it. That was the moment where I was free.
4: The rest of Claire and Sarah's story is pretty much a fairy tale. They fall more in love. They get a puppy together. Claire proposes on New Year's Eve. Sarah says yes. And even though Sarah's living a total double life at this point, Having a wedding without her family by her side felt so much bigger than all of the other lies.
1: It was just a lot of conflicting emotions towards my mum in particular. I felt very sorry for her because she wanted me to get married so badly, and now it's happening and she can't be a part of it. It was very, very painful because I realised at that moment I've lost them. They're truly gone.
4: Sarah's never gonna stop lying to her family. The lies are actually gonna get even bigger and more elaborate, because Sarah and Claire are planning on having babies together. I'll
1: just do what I always do and find some crafty, innovative way to keep it from them because they just can't know. But I also have to live my life. And Claire also has to live her life. Why did you wanna talk with me today and share your story? Homophobia is still real. And it is very real in cultures or backgrounds in which religion or culture has classified it as sin or as some abnormality. And I think if there aren't role models, are you, I'm not calling myself a role model. What I mean more is an example of a life situation where there is that possibility of no, these belief systems are wrong and you can most definitely be happy and live your authentic self, then I think a lot of people would be in the dark unnecessarily.
4: When I interviewed Sarah, Claire was sitting close by playing with their dog Teddy. I asked Claire what it was like to be a secret wife. Wasn't it weird and horrible to think that her parents-in-law think that she should rot
1: in hell? How did she handle that? I think when you find your person, there are two types of love, selfish love and selfless love. And we have selfless love.
4: Claire says, yeah, Sarah has a lot of baggage. But at the end of the day, putting Sarah before herself is all that matters.
1: If you are comfortable within yourself and you find a partner that makes you feel loved and accepted and, and you have that selfless love, that respect, trust and loyalty, it'll always work. Hack Triple J.
0: That was Sarah's story speaking there with Andrew McCormack and so many of you really affected by that story. Look, a huge thanks to all of our guests for this special edition of Hack from the Sydney World Pride Human Rights Conference. A big thanks as well to the conference organisers for having us here. And thanks to you for listening, for paying attention and for all your input too. That's all we've got time for on Hack for now. I'll be back tomorrow for the shake-up. I'll catch you then.
4: Hack.